0: Podcast on the wealth of windex we're talking group G in this episode and with me to discuss it are four experts on those four nations so it's time to say hello to Richard jolly first of all um, Richard tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, and also your favorite World Cup to date
1: uh yeah um football journalist uh for um the national the guardian sunday express uh espn yahoo uh anyone who'll pay me basically um and my favorite world cup to date uh 1994 i would say um partly because england weren't in it so that was uh, that 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 had was beneficial in many respects Couldn't and um just a- <laughs> Yeah, just a tournament that, I mean, whilst it had a, an admittedly terrible final, uh, had a lot of good games, uh, a lot of enterprising good teams, a nice blend of of shocks, but also with quality teams and quality players doing well. And I think that was compelling for large amounts of it, really. You'll
0: be covering England for us. I'll, I'll come back to you in a minute because um, I know you're a little bit pushed on time. I'm first going to introduce the other three we've got with us today. Um, first, Mahir, who's going to be covering Tunisia for us. Uh, Mahir, maybe introduce a little bit about yourself and tell us your favourite World Cup to date as well, please.
2: Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Mahir Mazahi uh, I'm a freelance football journalist. I'm based in Algiers, and uh, you can find a lot of my work on the BBC. I uh, do some stuff at the Guardian as well than Quesse ESPN so a little bit everywhere uh, similar to Richard uh, my favourite World Cup to date was probably the 2006 World Cup uh, simply because of that run that Zidane sort of spurred France on I thought it was magical and I thought the perfect storybook ending would have been uh, him lifting the cup uh, after that final against Italy and it was just so tragic but so beautiful at the same time so because of that 2006 World Cup I think it was my favourite My favorite to date yeah. Yeah some
0: amazing performances in there from Zidane yeah, that it's long in the memory, too. I'll also be introducing Amit now. Amit, you're going to be our Panama expert. Maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself.
3: Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm a current junior at Northwestern University studying journalism. Uh, I've done a lot of work covering the United States men's national team for SB Nation. I'll be doing some other podcasting stuff for World Football Index during the World Cup as well. Uh, and I have a lot of experience with MLS and CONCACAF in general. Uh, also, favorite World Cup. Uh, since I'm kind of young, I, I only really have a few to pick from. Uh, my favorite is probably 2014. Obviously, some recency bias there, but that's the first one I was really, you know, all into watching every game. Uh, you know, the final well, wasn't great. The semifinal Germany Brazil was memorable, but not great. But I just remember being as a U.S. fan very excited for them to play well. Uh, and just Colombia as well was a lot of fun in that tournament for me. I, I just really enjoyed it. My first one really getting it full into yeah,
0: it. I thought the group stages four years ago were a lot of fun, actually. Um, so it's not a, not a bad choice at all. Um, and finally, we've got James. Um, he's a regular contributor to the World Football Index website. And he's kindly put himself forward to cover Belgium for us. How's it going, James?
4: Very well, thank you. Uh, just to give a quick introduction, um, I interviewed uh, mainly Dutch professional players and managers As I'm based here in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, but I've also interviewed a few Belgian uh, professional players in the past. Uh, Interviews have been uh, published on World Football Index as well as uh, interviews that have been published on footballannual.com. I've also featured on TalkSport in the past, which has been quite nice. My first World Cup, uh, my favourite World Cup would be the first one, and and that for me was uh, 1990. I may have been very, very young. But it, I'd never seen anything like it with the colours and the teams, and, and England getting to the semi-finals. And uh, even though there's been many since then, because it was the first one that really captured my imagination and the first one that I, that made me sit up and take notice, that still has a special place in my heart. So I would say yeah, it's had a 90 for me.
0: Yeah, that, that's that's probably my favourite as well. Um, I was six at the time, and yeah, it just, it, just it, it gave me my love for football. I think that that tournament. Right, okay, so it's time to get started. I'll come to Richard and to talk about England. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is obviously the major absentee from this squad, which is a shame, you know, after that Liverpool move went so well, and I think England could have done with more depth in that position. Judging by my Twitter, you know, I don't live in England, I live here in Chile, so it's difficult to uh, difficult to judge just how opt- how optimistic England fans are right now, but Judging by my Twitter, at least, there's some optimism after decent performances in friendlies that this could be a better World Cup, certainly than it was four years ago for the Free Lions. That naturally makes me uh, wonder where it's all going to go wrong. Richard, how do you see the expectations for this England team?
1: I think they're probably quite realistic um, in the sense that I think a lot of people will expect England to get to the last 16. There's probably too many people, I would say, who maybe expect England to get to the quarterfinals, which I think is a distinct possibility when you look at the the draw both in the group and then in terms of who the teams to progress from this group will face, i.e., both the winner and the runner-up will get teams from that group of uh, Poland, Colombia, Senegal, and Japan, where it's not the sort of group whereby if you finish second in your group, you get Brazil in the last sixteen. So, so I think I think that is the a possibility, which I think maybe some people are a bit too optimistic about. But I, I really haven't come across anyone suggesting anything further than the quarterfinals, which in itself, is quite a change from previous World Cups, maybe not so much 2014, but everything before then, you would always get people tipping England to go further. And in some cases, there were times when England either could have gone further or had the talent to go further, um, but basically did not deserve to go further. And really, I mean, we've already mentioned 1990. And 1990 stands out because 28 years later on, England still haven't got to another World Cup semi-final and that remains the only one on foreign soil. Um, this, I think, is a team that is probably one of the less talented of the England team since then. But the big difference with 2014 is the composition of the group um, and also the, the order of the fixtures, uh, because England's first two fixtures... Um, four years ago, where Italy and Uruguay and England can tend to be slow starters in groups. They certainly were then. And without wishing to dismiss Tunisia and Panama, I think the fixture list has been kinder to them this time.
0: For sure. And and what do you see as kind of the strengths of this England team? Because I'm excited to see if Southgate can get England's attacking players firing, basically. You know, he, he's, he's got some real talent there. In obviously Kane is obviously one of the best strikers in the world, huh? At the moment, uh, Delhi Alley, you've got Lingard, uh, Sterling. These these players offer England quite a lot of dynamism. Ugh, I can't get the word out. Um, dynamism, pace, uh, pace, and pace. Yeah. Um, do, do you do you agree with that being a possible strength for this England side? And is there anything else you can think of why England fans should be optimistic?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think the pace and dynamism is an encouraging element. I think Southgate has tried to harness the best things of the new generation of England players, and a lot of that is speed going forwards. Uh, Harry Kane is obviously a reason to be optimistic. Um, outstanding scoring record in his last three seasons for Tottenham. He's also scored goals in the last year or so for England, which he wasn't doing so consistently beforehand. And he's got a good record of scoring when he's been England captain. The one worry you would say about Harry Kane is just that he puts so much into, see- into the actual season that he can be ineffectual by the summer, which we saw in both Euro 2016 and uh, European Under-21 championships in the past. Um, I think there's, a, there's an interesting situation with the other attacking players you mentioned in that so far we've seen them be a lot more potent at club level than for their country. Uh, Raheem Sterling, owned 23 goals for Manchester City this season. He's only got two in his England career. Deli Alli's only got two in his England career as well. Now, I think the system that Gareth Southgate is playing, this kind of 3-3-2-2 or 3-5-2, whatever you want to call it, is designed to suit them and has the potential to suit them. But England haven't been prolific at all in his reign. And they rarely, they don't often score more than one goal and they rarely score more than two, which in turn puts an emphasis on... The defence and can they can they keep the goals out at the other end? The switch to a back three, I think, has made a lot of sense. It's worked with a lot of the players that, that Southgate's got at his disposal. And one of the reasons to be optimistic is that this is an England group that does appear to be on an upward curve. It's a fairly inexperienced group. Gar- uh, Gary Cahill's the only player in the squad with 50 caps. I think it's the third youngest squad in the World Cup. Gareth Southgate's shown a willingness to pick players on form and on what they've done recently rather than either on reputations or simply because they, they play for big clubs and and England. It hasn't been a closed shop, but the other way of looking at that is that they've got a lot of inexperience. There's a lot of players who've never been exposed to this before that could go very well. And it's interesting that Southgate regards the best of his, his four international tournaments as a player was the first one was Euro 96 where he came into it with a handful of caps And despite the missed penalty at the end, um, had a very, very good tournament in terms terms of his own form. And I think you see that reflected in the current squad. But certainly if England do get to the knockout stages, they will be facing at some stage teams with a lot more experience in that kind of situation.
0: For sure. I've seen and heard people say that Jamie Vardy should perhaps start over Kane against Belgium and other teams that are
1: seen as better than England. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, I don't, no. The case for Vardy is in part that he's got a very, very good scoring record against the top clubs in the Premier League, and, and, and he genuinely does. And part of the reason for that is that he's got that pace that you can use on the counter-attack. To do that, on the other hand, you need the opposition to push up in the first ca- in the first instance. So, so there is a kind of a logic to picking him against Belgium, and again potentially against opponents in the knockout stages who might do that. But we've not really seen too many signs that Vardy and Kane will work as a partnership. There's the question: if you pick Jamie Vardy, who do you take out of the team? Do you take Deli Ali out? Do you take Raheem Sterling out? Um, and there's also if you look at England's most recent game against Costa Rica, Jamie Vardy played up front with Marcus Rashford, and Rashford was, the, was by far and away the outstanding striker in that game. So Rashford, I think, in that sense, has a stronger case to play than Vardy.
0: Sure, and, and, and let's move on to some of the weaknesses, perhaps, of this England team. Um, I, th- I think there's a few. I'll, I'll leave the main ones to you. But England's squad is the only one at the World Cup which doesn't feature a player that plays abroad. Um, it's also a squad that certainly seems weak compared to England's squads of the noughties, for example. Is, is that fair? Do you, do you see that kind of the the fact that these England players haven't got that much experience um, playing against, um, well,
1: playing in different foreign environments? Is, is, is that potentially a weak? It could be. Um, I think the encouraging element is that England Even though they've had foreign managers in the past, I think Gareth Southgate as an English manager has brought in some new ideas uh, which have been reflected in the change of system. But to go back to the other point you made, yeah, England do not have as many world-class players as they did in the past. If you were to pick a combined England and France team, there wouldn't be many England players in. The same if you were to pick a combined England and Spain team or a combined England and Germany team, for instance. So then you've got the question of, Can they get the optimum formula within the, within the the limitations they've got in terms of talent and within the squad they've got? Um, We don't know at the moment what Southgate's strongest back three will be and what his first choice back three will be. Uh, Things have certainly changed there. I think his ideal left wing back is Danny Rose, but he's not had a good season at all for Tottenham. Um, So it'd be a question of if he plays or if Ashley Young plays. England's best right wing back really is probably Kyle Walker but he'll he looks as though he'll be playing as the right of the three center backs. So then there's a question of whether Trippier or Alexander-Arnold plays and and if so how each copes in terms of the actual makeup of the midfield. I think against Tunisia and Panama Southgate will go with one holding player and two number 8s uh, probably Jesse Lingard and Desi and Deli Ali but that does risk the question of against the stronger teams, does he need two more defensively minded players there? Does he have to bring in Eric Dyer and Jordan Henderson? and if so, does that make England a bit too limited in terms of what they've got going forward? Certainly, there isn't really a proper playmaker in the centre of that team. There's no one to really control possession. I think England potentially could be quite could break quite quickly and could be good at the counter attack there'll be times when they need to keep hold of the ball and in that sense it's a shame really that that Jack Wilshere firstly that he hasn't really kicked on in the way that um a lot of people hoped and also that his fitness has not been what it was required to convince Southgate because I do think he's quite a unique player in 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 terms of the current English group and they don't have anyone like him um and Basically, if you get to a World Cup quarter final, which as I say is probably the best case scenario for England, they could just be up against more talented players, teams with more match winners, um, teams with more cohesion as a result of playing together for longer. It's it's worth looking at this England team to see just how few caps some of these players have. In Alexander Arnold's case it's only one cap in Jordan Pickford's case in goal, it's only three or four. Uh, Fabian Delft's come back into the fold. He's only got about 10 caps. Harry Maguire's only got a few as well. And you go through it, and and that's not really ideal. But, I, I mean, I do think Southgate's picked close on his best squad, but it's just the circumstances of it all I think is probably not ideal timing. That's fantastic, Richard. Before
0: you go, um just tell the listeners where people can find you on Twitter, but also well it, it's kind of difficult for these kind of the bigger nations of this World Cup, should we say, but most of our listeners will be well versed with this England squad, so it's hard to pick sort of an unknown talent like with some of the smaller nations that we've been doing, but which of these England players do you think that can? have a real impact at this world cup I'll, I'll phrase it like that instead for for england
1: yeah you, you, you're right in that obviously p you know people watch manchester united manchester city tottenham etc so um and and even someone like trent alexander arnold who a lot of people wouldn't have heard of a year ago they'll have seen him play in a champions league final and in champions league quarterfinals and semifinals i think a player to really watch out for because it could go either way for him is john stone's I think Gareth Southgate likes a passer at the back. His pass completion rate for Manchester City is absurdly high, um, but he's barely played in the second half of the Premier League season. His uh, defending can be questioned. I think he was possibly uh, slightly at fault for a goal Nigeria, scored against England in a friendly recently. So, I think Stones fits the ideal of what Southgate wants, but it's a question of if the player himself can be as flawless as England need him to be. So so, so he's one I'll be interested to see. And um, and yes, uh, I can be found on Twitter at Rich Jolly and um, as I say, uh, ESPN, um, The Guardian, The National, The Straits, Times, uh, Yahoo, The Blizzard, anyone else who will pay me.
0: Okay, that's, that's great, Richard. Thanks so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you. Okay, now I'll come on to the other teams in the group. Um I'm gonna start with Tunisia, uh, as that's England's first opponent. So it's a, it's a, there's a nice link there. But here I, I believe Tunisia are without their key man, uh Yusuf M. Sakmi, I think it's pronounced, who is out injured. That's a huge blow for them, um I believe. Um has that had an I'd I imagine that's had an effect on the expectations in, in Tunisia and I've listened to some other pods which have kind of written Tunisia and Panama off in this group. Um but I watched Tunisia's friendly against Spain at the weekend and came away thinking that England will need to be switched on for a full ninety minutes in that opening clashes. As I think Tunisia have some dangerous players there on the counter. So is there is there hope in Tunisia that they can maybe upset one of the big boys in this group?
2: Yeah, I think you're right in stating that initially it was such a big uh, blow, at least morally speaking, to lose Yusuf Mseckny. For those who don't know Yusuf Mseckny, he's probably um, one of the best players playing their football uh, outside of Europe, I think. He's the attacking midfielder that can pretty much do everything. He can... Uh, With the ball at his feet, he's so dangerous. He has the vision to pick out passes and split defenses. He can score. uh, He can dribble. He really has it all in his locker. And if it wasn't for uh, Qatar uh, offering so much money, he wouldn't be playing in their league. I'm sure he would be playing somewhere in Europe. There were a lot of clubs that were very interested for a long, long time, including there were even rumors of Paris Saint-Germain being interested uh, back when... Apparently, the rumors were saying that Nasser, Khalifi and QSI were looking to bring an Arab star to, to PSG to sort of uh, help grow their brand in, in the Arabian world. But that never materialized. Nevertheless, losing Yusuf Masekni is a big blow. But he has been replaced, I think, uh, by a duo in Naim Sliti, who plays for Dijon, and Wabi Khazri, who maybe a lot of people that watch the Premier League might remember, uh, played for Sunderland a couple years back. Uh, this year, Wabi Khazri has been... Incredibly, incredibly good. He switched from an attacking midfield role to a false nine role at uh, Rennes. That was a move that Christian Gorkouf made. Um, and he's been playing very, very well. He scored more than 10 goals for club and country. Um, and I expect him to start as a, as a false number nine against England. So that's something they're going to have to watch out for. So it was a big moral blow. And I think initially it sort of... Uh, how can I say this? It made... It made things pessimistic. But watching Tunisia play in these pre-tournament friendlies, I think everybody's sort of uh, become enthusiastic once more because they've performed very, very well, including against Spain, as you mentioned, uh, Adam.
0: Yeah, that's interesting about Kazri because he, he blew quite hot and cold at Sunderland from from what I remember. But it, it does seem that that new position has been getting the best out of him. Um, so yeah, like you say, that's definitely one player that England will have to watch out for and not, not become complacent about just because they think they know a little bit about him. So apart from Kateri what, what what do you see as maybe some of the other strengths of this Tunisia side I see many of their players seem to be around the peak of their careers which is usually a good sign for a side um so maybe that's one of them
2: Yeah exactly there's I know I know it's not ideal to say on a podcast but a lot of um or uh, in in terms of any analysis but a lot of Tunisia's strengths are actually it's it's intangibles and team chemistry is definitely part of that uh most of these players broke out in the 2014 world cup qualifiers 2015 cup of nations and they've been growing together for a solid two three years now and so they have uh, they know each other very very well they know each other's habits and 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 they've become close friends they've all sort of come up through the top three uh club sides in playing in Tunisia so they know each other well. Uh, one thing that they, that's also very clear about this Tunisia side is their tactics. They'll probably play a 4-3-3 with their midfield three, uh, have, having one defensive midfielder that really sits back. Uh, his name is Elias Khiri. He came from Montpellier. Um, and in front of him, you have Mohamed Amin Ben Amour and Frigiani Sassi, I think, Uh, They're two of the best uh, midfield players playing on the African continent. They can do everything so well. They can attack. They can defend. They have great endurance. uh, And their football IQ is so high. So I think Tunisia's midfield is very impressive. Uh, They know... The, the tactics and the roles that they play in, and, and finally, I think one of their strengths is also their fullbacks. On one hand, you at, on the left at left back you have Ali Malul, who plays for al in in Cairo in Egypt, and at right back you have Hamdi Nages, who plays for Zamalek also in Cairo in Egypt. And again, these are two players that performed very well with the Tunisian, uh, with their Tunisian clubs in in continental competitions like the African Champions League. And they were snapped up by two of the continent's biggest giants. Again, these are players that could easily be playing, you know, maybe not at Champions League clubs in Europe, but definitely, you know, in very respectable clubs. So these two fullbacks, they tend to get up very high and sometimes they leave their positions and they can become susceptible to counterattacks. But uh, for me, they're probably two, another strength that Tunisia uh, have have in their hands.
0: Okay. Um, and what do you see as the weaknesses here? Because from the outside looking in and and something I saw in that Spain game maybe sort of in the final third just making the right decision, uh, taking their chances seems to be perhaps a bit of an issue. So a lack of goals you could say is, is, is maybe a weakness here? I, th-
2: I think that's fair and I think part of that comes from not having a true striker. The, the, again, against Spain and against Turkey, they've always been playing with a false nine. They haven't been playing with a real striker. Um, and that's... Part of that is, is due to... to They're unfortunate to lose their, their main striker, Taha yassin uh to injury. And they've sort of been deputizing with uh, with lots of different attacking midfielders in that false number nine role. So I think that, that could be part of it. And another part of it, I, another weakness, I would say, is a lot of uncertainty in a lot of different positions. So starting at goalkeeper... For throughout the World Cup qualifying campaign, they've been playing with their their captain, number 16, Eamon Methluthi, who's 33 years old and has 70 caps to his name. So he was he was starting and it was, seemed he'd 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 be penciled in to start the World Cup. But in the March uh, friendlies before the World Cup, the coach Nabil Malul sort of brought in five players from the diaspora. You had uh, Moez Hassan who's a goalkeeper playing for Chateau you had Johan Benalwan of Leicester City uh, you also had Elias Kiri, who we just spoke about who would be starting as a defensive midfielder um, and you also had uh, Seyfeddin Khawi uh, who plays for Tua, but who's on loan from Marseille. So he brought in a lot of these uh, French-Tunisian players from the dias- from diaspora to sort of shore up a lot of areas that he thought weren't strong enough. And one of those I think might be goalkeeper. So it's still a toss-up. We don't know who's going to be starting in goal. If it's going to be Ayman Methuthi, who has 70 caps to his name, who's been captain, who's very experienced, or if it's going to be Mouez Hassan, who only has three caps to his name. So that's one thing. And and the other would be a lot of individual mistakes made in defense. So we talked about the fullbacks and how great they are attacking-wise. They can be a little bit susceptible to uh, to defending crosses. Um, and also, I think the center half sometimes they make uh, a few mistakes. So you have Yassin Mariah, number four, and you also have CM Ben Yusuf, uh, number two. They've been very susceptible to making individual mistakes mm-hmm. due to a lack of concentration or maybe something else, I'm not sure. But uh, for example, against Spain, when Spain did score their goal, they broke an offside trap that was anything but an offside trap i think there was a good 10 feet between the two center halves um and diego costa played that very well to, to spring a break and, and create that goal so i think maybe individual mistakes in defense uh, that maybe you know stronger teams can capitalize on but also in attack uh i think as you mentioned they haven't really capitalized on taking their chances and we're still not sure who's going to be starting in key positions like goalkeeper
0: oh, that's great man here I'll, I'll come back to you um towards the end of the pod to get to get your thoughts on maybe a couple of names to look out for in in that Tunisia side i 'm going to come on to Belgium now, the top seed in the group and uh, and have a chat with James about them um, expectations here james uh, for Belgium now personally i I never rated mark wilmot the the previous uh, head coach he's but he's he was unsurprisingly replaced by Uh, maybe a surprise choice in Roberto Martinez, Spanish coach that uh, that fans of English football will obviously know well. Belgium had a very easy qualification process. They haven't played particularly many difficult friendlies either. So at the moment, I find them hard to judge. um, And I imagine that expectations there in Belgium are a little bit tempered by the fact they've underperformed in recent recent tournaments, despite all the talent that they have.
4: Yes, I would agree. Uh, But I also think the quality of the squad they have has meant that the country does believe they can do something. The big news of the squad was the omission of uh, Araja Nangolan, who promptly promptly announced his international retirement as soon as he was omitted from the squad. And then shortly afterwards, players like uh, Toby Alderweireld and uh, a couple of others um, stated their disbelief that he wasn't selected and uh, because he's was um well respected within the squad and um and they've they've got some very, very good players. But um Martinez stated that he didn't take him for tactical reasons, but considering the experience he's got at Arceloma, I do find it a bit of a strange decision. But if you look if you look at the spine they have from front to back, they've got uh, I think Thomas Mounier I think will, will do very well at right back. In the centre, they've got uh, Kevin De Bruyne. Of course, who's had a wonderful season at Manchester City, and also Luis Mertens, who's had a, a fantastic season at, at Napoli, and uh, is a, is an exceptionally uh, exceptionally good player.
0: Sure. So, uh, I'm I'm usually usually I start with strengths, but you know, but the weakness there you you mentioned, um, you've already mentioned one weakness there. So so we we'll stick with that for now. Yeah. So it's arguably the head coach, isn't it? But the fact that Kevin De Bruyne and um, and a couple of other players, like you say, have have already criticised him. That makes me think that Martinez maybe hasn't really got the respect of this dressing room, and um, and and I get the feeling that it won't take much for it to all go wrong for Belgium in in, in this World Cup. Um, most of most of these Belgian players play under world class coaches for their club sides, and 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 I'm starting to think maybe they they. They just don't respect uh, Roberto Martinez that much.
4: I personally think that the players will try to take it upon themselves to change tactics within with, within games to try to get victories over the line. Um, I do agree in terms of the um, the looking at Martinez, in terms of tactical now for them to go really, really far in the tournament. But um, Martinez has also won 12 out of his 18 games since he became manager. And if you look at the recent history of... Uh, of Belgian football managers, so if you go back into the recent past with Frankie Vergauden uh, and Dick Alvacart, although that was extremely, uh, to, uh, didn't last very long at all, in Georgia Lakens, they've always chosen a, a Belgian national team manager. And they did the same with Vilmots, who I think with Mark Vilmots, he gave his players too much freedom in terms of, for example, with Nyngelan, he would allow him to smoke on. Uh, on um, after after training and things like that, and be a little bit lax. And this is the first time that the Belgian National Team Association have, have gone with a, a foreign coach for the first time in quite and quite a long time. And uh, I think they're trying to provide a new impulse. But I personally believe that the players will uh, take it upon themselves to change things uh, as, as, this, as the tournament progresses, because I think that the tactical nous of Martinez may well be Belgium's undoing in this World Cup. Interesting. Do you see any other weaknesses in this in this side? I, yeah, I would say possibly the, the the lack of caps for certain young players, for the younger players such as Dendonko and uh, Boyata, and um, uh, they don't they don't have they don't, don't really have many caps between them. And uh...
0: to me, you know, the defense should have a decent understanding. They have an array of very good midfielders, and obviously some of the best attacking players in the world: Hazard, De Bruno, and Lukaku, Mertens all names that you've already mentioned. So yeah, it does seem like the individuals are perhaps the strength of this of this Belgian side there. The but they can produce world yep. world class moments, no?
4: Yeah, yeah. I think the creativity, Adam. I think the creativity is their strongest point. It's the creativity of Hazard, the creativity of De Brown, uh, and the when he you know, when when he starts to play, even though he's currently uh, currently playing his club club football in China. I think that the main strength is the creativity they have to 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 score goals and to create chances. And I think that, that's the main threat of the national team going into the World Cup this summer.
0: OK, that's great. And it's time, I think, to bring the the weakest side in this group and arguably the weakest side in the tournament as well, Panama, into the conversation. <laughs> Amit, the expectations there in Panama, I imagine, aren't particularly high. This is their first ever qualification for a World well Cup, and so much so it's a, a national holiday there. Yeah, they, they, they made it to Russia by defeating Costa Rica 2-1 in a dramatic qualifier. There were, there were some famous scenes with the ball boy like kicking the ball, I, I seem to remember, out, out of the stadium pretty much, to, to waste some time after they scored their winner. It's a country of only 4 million people, so the fact that they managed to, to edge out you know, United States, for example, is incredible. They had come close on many occasions uh, in, in recent qualification campaigns. They finally made it, but I think the fear is that perhaps some of their better players and the and the ones which certainly up front who have scored the goals for them over the years are, are perhaps a little bit over the hill now.
3: Yeah, I think you you nailed it right on the head. They're just happy to be here, and you are talking about that past qualification campaign in 2014, they were really minutes away from getting a playoff spot. And then United States scored twice in stoppage time to knock them out. Mexico got the playoff spot, ended up making the World Cup. And really, that was the golden time of their team. In 2013, they made the finals of the Gold Cup. And the problem is they really haven't introduced a lot of new talent since then. It's really the same squad that did it four years ago that came close is the squad that qualified this year. And you know, all things considered, they really should not have qualified. It took a miracle against Costa Rica, the late, late goal from Roman Torres. And it also took the United States losing to Trinidad and Tobago 2-1. And, you know, you know, Americans will know is one of the craziest results uh, for their side in their history. And they're relying on strikers like Blas Perez and Luis Tejada, who are 37 and 36, respectively. Uh, they're just very old. There's not a lot of pace in the side. And you look around their whole side and, and it's really like that. Goalie Jaime Pinedo is 36, and you know their best player, I think, is their center back Roman Torres, the guy who scored the dramatic goal, uh, plays for the S- Seattle Sounders. He was a very solid defender. He's 32, which the heaviest, uh,
0: up- the heaviest side. player in the World Cup as well. I mean, yeah,
3: really. They told was, him that, and he yeah, just pulled his I shirt off. That. that was classic. Yeah, up. yeah, totally owning it. And that's the kind of the mentality. They know that they're counted out. They know that they're old. They're slow. You want to call them fat and call them fat, but they're happy to be here. And they did not get a particularly kind draw. I mean, if you put them in Group A, you know, maybe this side could have a puncher's chance of making the knockout round. But England and Belgium are just two very good teams, and Tunisia is solid as well. And it's hard to find a way where they can score goals. You know, they're going to play a disciplined defense, they're going to pack it in. Uh, they've certainly frustrated sides in the past, but they're also not playing good football coming into this. Uh, their their spring campaign was pretty poor. Uh, they lost 6 0 to Switzerland, and in their two kind of send off friendlies, they drew Northern Ireland 0 0, and they lost to Norway 1 0. Two results which really do not bode well for how they're going to play in Russia. Uh, they also lost one of their better players, um, uh, Alberto Quintero, who plays uh, for Universitario. He's really good. He's kind of one of their electric attackers. He's out and that kind of robs them of some of their dynamism on the counter attack. I think they're going to have a lot of trouble scoring goals. You might see them be able to frustrate England or Belgium for a whole match. You know, maybe concede just one, but as likely as that is, there's every chance that they could you know give up a goal early and completely fold and lose four zero, five zero, like that. That's what could happen for this team.
0: Yeah, ho- hopefully, hopefully we don't see that, um, especially with it being their first World Cup. The 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 strengths of this panama team it's, it's, it's quite difficult to find one but maybe we we resort to the cliche that kind of their hard work and uh, team spirit might be the key to any success that they have
3: yeah we were kind of talking with tunisia you know the intangibles you can't really measure them and experience certainly is something that this side does not lack they've got six players with over 100 caps they, they've been doing this for a long time and You know, they they know how to, you know, game the system a bit, you know, time wasting, certainly uh, very physical. They do not they do not want to let teams play. They're going to foul a lot. They're really going to push the limits of what they can get away with in a match, get under the skin of uh, the other team's best players. Um, And if they start, you know, you know, 20 minutes go by, 25 minutes go by and the other team hasn't scored, hasn't really had a, a few good looks at goal. They could really grow into a match and have a lot of belief they could be extremely frustrating uh, when they want to be and the question for them is how long can they pull off that magic trick of just keeping their their goal clean and if they do you know get deep in the second half maybe they go forward a bit you know they steal a goal on the counter that's kind of their their strength in this game that they're they're very mentally tough and they're very physically tough as well but you know you're kind of searching for clichés it's a lot of covering up for you know, really weaknesses at every up position down. up and down the squad. Yeah,
0: and, and that brings me on. What what do you see as their main weakness?
3: Uh, it's a lack of pace. Even their defense, which is solid. You know, Roman Torres, very good. Harold Cummings is very good. Adolfo Machado, who plays for Houston Dynamo, is also solid. They, none of those guys are fast. Um, you know, the thing is they're going to try to compress the field defensively, you know, kind of set up a very deep line. But if you can catch them out at all, you know, get them playing in transition uh, and somehow find, you know, a way to use your pace, especially a team like England or Belgium, who's got a lot of tricky attackers, that's where they're going to be. They're going to be toast if they're trying to defend in space. They can't do that. Um, Defending, you know, very compact, two deep banks of four, they'll feel very comfortable. But if you stretch them at all, I, I think that's their big weakness. And then, you know, that's not even talking about the fact I don't know how they can get a goal against these against these teams. They, they really don't have a lot going forward. Um, they have to commit a lot of numbers forward, you know, set pieces. They might be able to do something. Roman Torres is actually, you know, a pretty accomplished set piece scorer, a big, big height in the box. But it, it's really tough for them to score going forward. And Blas Perez is, is, you know, he's very good. He scored a lot of goals in his career, but he's way over the hill. You know, he's kind of four years past his prime. They do have some pace in Gabriel Torres. Um, he's kind of their second striker. He, he's
0: strike. the player I've seen a lot of. This year because he, he plays um, here in Chile for Huachapato. and um, and I, I think I think he's quite talented actually he he's one of the top scorers here in Chile this year um, he's quick he he can he can beat defenders and 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 he seems quite a confident chap as well so I think he should start but my worry is is that I think that maybe the coach might stay loyal to kind of the old timers there in attack like yeah. Blas Perez yeah. and, and Luis Tejada and, and maybe Torres only sort of gets his chance off the bench.
3: Yeah that's a that's a really good you know point that you pose for manager Hernan Dario Gomez who you know is kind of experienced at doing this, getting a, a kind of a smaller team. Uh, he took Colombia to a World Cup in ninety eight. They're not obviously not a small team, but at the time big accomplishment took Ecuador in 2002, certainly a big accomplishment to get out of South America. And then, of course, taking Panama to his first World Cup. But you'd c- certainly get the sense that he's kind of loyal to his guys, to the generation that has been toiling away for so long. And I think it would be a very big mistake to, to start Perez and Tejada or play one striker. They really need Gabriel Torres's pace. Like you said, he's creative and he's confident. He's, he's going to take players on. And if, I think if you leave him out of the squad there's really not a lot of difference makers, not a lot of guys who can turn a game on its head and grab you a goal. And especially without Quintero as well, their, their most creative player is going to be uh, Torres. I think in the midfield, you know, I'm personally a big fan of Anibal Godoy. He's a box to box midfielder plays for the earthquakes, really solid it, it going forward and, you know, winning the ball, but he's not really a creator of chances. Um, I think he he'll be very important for them, but it's hard for me to look at a guy in the squad that can get you a goal when you need it.
0: Yeah, uh, looking through this Panama squad, I've actually got another Chilean-based player, and, and that's Armando Cooper. I believe he's a regular no, for 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 Panama, 97 caps. So he's yeah, he, he should, yeah, should he, get his Hunter of Cap in in uh, in Russia, which which would be nice
3: for him. Uh, but he's barely played here for Universidad the Chile. He just played with Toronto FC last year, so I saw a bit of him in the MLS. Uh, he's a pretty solid uh, outside back for them, and he he's not slow, which certainly helps their back line a bit. I, I couldn't tell you why he's not playing that much in Chile, but I think he's a solid player, and he um he's better than their other options at, at outside back. Um, I think. I think uh, another player that's good for them is Mario, Mur- Michael Mario. He plays for Red Bulls. He's kind of he's been relegated to their second team, but he offers some pace as well. But he's only 22, and I don't think they're they're going to go with him. They're probably going to play uh, an older player at that spot, like Harold Cummings or Adolfo Machado, both of whom are natural center backs, but who Gomez trusts more.
0: Yeah, Michael Mario.
3: He's uh,
0: he he's he's seen as kind of. One of the best young talents in this Panama side, from what I've heard from others. Yeah, that's that's great. So, who who do you see as um, as maybe one or two players that people should keep an eye on? Maybe up an up and coming star. You, I think you've just mentioned one there, if if he does get to play. But also you know, one of the regulars in this Panama side who people might want to keep an eye out for and also tell the listeners where people can find you on Twitter.
3: Yeah, I think one name we haven't mentioned yet is Edgar Barcinas, who is probably going to play some outside midfield for this team, a winger, uh, on the other side uh, that Quintero was playing. That uh, They're replacing Quintero with a 19-year-old, Jose Luis Rodriguez, who uh, he, he's certainly a young star, but I think Barcinas he's 24 I th- he plays in the second division of Mexico, but he's, he's actually pretty good. I think he's one player to watch. And then, obviously, I want to go back to Gabriel Torres, who I would love for him to play well and, you know, give Panama something to look forward to uh, going forward. I think that they need him to have any chance of going forward. And, you know, just kind of closing up on them, you know, getting a win, really, would just be really nice for them. Obviously, their schedule does them no favors because they have to play Belgium and England first. Uh, and, you know... Uh, it would be great if Tunisia could kind of get some scalps off the other two, but looking to be kind of like a dead rubber there in that last match, uh, it would be great if they could win there or even score a goal or two. And I think that would just be really nice for them to, you know, have something to end the tournament on a positive note on. Because I really can't find a way that they could advance out of this group. Um, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Amit K Malik, uh, Just my name, first name, last name. There's a middle initial in there that's a K. Um... And uh, my good friend Austin Miller and I, who's been doing the other group podcast, uh, preview podcast on World Football Index, we have a podcast of our own that is a little more lighthearted that you should certainly, you know, listen to if you're looking for a bit of fun during the World Cup here on World Football Index. That
0: will come out just minutes after this podcast comes out. So, um, so yeah, look out for that. Looking forward to listening to it. Amit, thanks so much for coming on. Um, I'm just gonna go now to Mahir. Thanks thanks for coming on as well, Mahir. Maybe you could just tell the listeners one or two players um, to look out for on this Tunisia side, and where people can find you on Twitter. Sure. So uh,
2: we've already spoken about Wabi Khazri. Uh, Don't think of him as a Khazri you know uh, from Sunderland. He's he's a different player. But I'm going to focus on uh, another Tunisian attacking midfielder named Naim Sliti. And this is somebody that's coming from the... The French lower divisions, playing for uh, Paris Red Star in the third division, and slowly moving his way up to the league. Now playing at Dijon, and um, he's such a good dribbler. He's among Europe's best dribblers in terms of um successful dribbles in terms of percentages. He's very rarely dispossessed of the ball and Tunisia are going to look for him to sort of hold the ball up uh, to sort of relieve some of that pressure away from them and create chances. So Naeem Sleeti who plays for Dijon at the moment. And uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Mizahi Maher so M-E-Z-A-H-I-M-A-H-E-R and that's just my last name and then my first name. So you can find me on Twitter. Uh, That's mostly where
0: I'll be. Thanks so much, Mahir. And uh, finally, James, where can people find you on Twitter and maybe one or two um, Belgian players to to keep an eye on in this World Cup that maybe aren't so familiar to, to our listeners.
4: Okay, um, I would mention Leander donker who's a, a midfielder who plays for Anderlecht. He's not so he's not as well known as the uh, as, uh, as the other big names in the squad. And although Aiden Hazard has a wonderful reputation, his brother Torhen, uh who plays for the British and Gladbach, may well have. Uh, a few fleeting moments. So I would say those are the two in terms of, um, of looking out uh looking out for in terms of unknown quantity. But if I had to pick up one player apart from the, the many well-known names that I would say is going to have a very good world cup for Belgium, that would be, uh, Yuri Dielemans from Monaco. Uh, he uh, started off at Anderlecht, uh, a while back and, and made a transfer to Monaco. I interviewed, uh, Pekswala defender Philip Sandler, who played against him at youth team level, and he uh, he said that even back then, when they used to play youth team tournaments in in the Netherlands and in Belgium, that he was just so quick and just so uh, so composed on the ball. And uh, I think he's a bit of an unknown quantity. He's also only one only 21 years of age. So I think in terms of a of, of a new a new player emerging for Belgium that not many people know about, I would say it's going to be uh, Jordi Delamonts.
0: OK, thanks so much, guys, for coming on. This wraps up our World Cup preview podcast for the World Football Index. It's been a fascinating eight pods. Thanks to Austin for, for covering the other four with me. Um, I couldn't have done it without him. It's uh, There's plenty of content coming up during the World Cup. Austin and Amit are going to have a show during the World Cup, as, as 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 you've just heard. There's also a pod out where myself and Austin we'll just have a, a, a quick review of all these uh, pods that we've done and uh, and pick out some of our favourite points from them. Um, there's there's going to be some globe pods coming during the World Cup where where if there's any sort of major shocks or incidents, we'll try and get some of the people that you've already heard on these eight podcasts back with us to, dis- to discuss those big, big moments that you get in a World Cup. So, yeah. thanks again to the guys for joining me today thanks to the listeners for for tuning in once more and it's goodbye from me